This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Something that we touched on very briefly yesterday, because uh, just as we went on the air yesterday, this started to fester on, on Twitter. And it was an exchange between Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger and a number of citizens. Uh, and it had to do, well, loosely with the, uh, the LRT discussion. And uh, if, if I can just recount this, I don't want to get on all the minutiae about this. But uh, somebody tweeted to the mayor a, a question about LRT and referenced the fact that uh, Councillor Donna Skelly had suggested, uh, well, reiterated basically what PC leader Doug Ford talked about when he was in town, that the billion dollars would be available to the city whether they build LRT or not. Uh, and the mayor responded to the tweet, and uh, in a rather interesting way, I guess, is maybe the best way to put this, uh, as you look at some of the, the reaction that went on there, uh, not only did he reiterate that, that he, he is opposed to this and says it doesn't make much sense that there really isn't a billion dollars and that, you know, it was a, he thought, a rather shallow campaign promise. But he went on to say in the tweet uh, about Councillor Skelly, said she is a rookie councillor who does not speak on behalf of the city of Hamilton Council, uh, decided to move forward and she should stop undermining its decision. Doesn't much care about Hamilton, just wants to be an MPP. This is her third attempt. Ward 7 was just a novelty. Well, that set off a firestorm of reaction, uh, among others. Uh, Councillor Skelly did not uh, take the bait, did not get involved in that, but many other people did, uh, both pro and con. And it, it, as often happens on Twitter, devolved from a debate about LRT, about uh, about demeanor and about uh, the mayor's uh, response and uh, obviously about the character of both people involved. So we uh, invited uh, Mayor Eisenberger to come on today. Unfortunately, he says he has a previous commitment, so he's not available to join us. But uh, Councillor Skelly certainly is, and she's with us here on the Bill Kelly Show. How are you this morning, Donna? I'm good, Bill. How are you? Good. Uh, I don't know where you were, what you were doing, but uh, did you? when did you get word of what was going on on Twitter yesterday? I check my Twitter account occasionally, and it wasn't yesterday. It was actually the night before that yeah. I believe the original um, tweet was posted. So it would have been... Uh, Wednesday night. Yeah, and uh, what was your reaction? Um, I just thought, well, you know, if that's the way he wants to behave, that's his prerogative. I didn't uh, feel there was... I, I never, ever engage on Twitter. I, I just don't think it's a, a healthy platform if people want to talk to me about an issue, including um, the mayor of the city council that I sit on then I'm available to discuss anything at any time via phone or in a, in a you know, private meeting one-on-one. But uh, I just don't, I just don't engage in, in, um, and respond to these types of personal attacks. I don't think that there's any benefit in engaging in that type of behavior. Actually, you're one of the few elected officials around here that doesn't get into the Twitter wars with an awful lot of the constituents. Uh, which, and by the way, I think it's a smart thing on your behalf because it's a no-win situation when you get back and forth like that. I agree. And, you know, it's really funny. I've felt for years that social media, all platforms of social media, have really become playgrounds for adult bullies. And I've seen it uh, quite a bit on Twitter. And I, I think this is probably just another example. This morning, um, when your producer called me, I was, uh, my, my sons, who are millennials, were making breakfast, heading out to work, and they asked me what the call was. And I told them and showed them the tweet. And it was funny because my son said, why do you old people act this way on Twitter? And I thought, that pretty much sums it up. <laughs> you know, it really does. I think it's, it's um, you know, it's really not uh, necessary. Uh, we, I have a lot of colleagues and a lot of friends who have very different political leanings. And we have respectful, professional 
conversations and interactions. And it's important to be able to have that type of a healthy relationship with people who hold different political views. Uh, I think that's the only way I certainly want to move forward in my political career. And I won't engage in this type of personal attack. It's, it's unhealthy and it's not productive. And um, I'm just not going to go there. You used the term bullying a minute ago. Do you feel that the mayor's tweet was bullying? Um, I don't think it was. Pro- I, I, you know, I'll let your your listeners draw their own conclusions. I, I just, I'll say it was certainly inappropriate. I, I don't think it's necessary to make anything personal. Um, do I love Hamilton? I love this city. I could have left years and years ago, but I've built a career here. I've I've um, raised a family here, and I have been deeply engaged in many aspects of this city, in communities, and, you know, I've volunteered, I've worked uh, tirelessly, and I think I've, I've done a great job representing people that, who um, voted me in as a, as a city councillor, and um, that I found somewhat offensive. I'm not sure if, why it was necessary. The LRT is a polarizing issue. It's a very divisive issue, and people support LRT and people don't support LRT, but to suggest that an opposition to a project in any way reflects one's passion or love of a city, I think, is is unnecessary, and I certainly wouldn't um, uh, throw mud at somebody who held a, a different view of mine, whether it's on LRT or any other um, issue that it arises in the city. But on that point, Donna, you must understand that you're probably an easy target for somebody who is pro-LRT, whether it's the mayor or anybody else. I mean, just as, sure. as the mayor has been the champion of this, you, you have been the, probably the most vocal opponent to it. Absolutely. I have been clear in my opposition to it, um, and for a number of reasons, and we can go through those reasons. You just, at the top of your show, uh, alluded to the fact that there is a, uh, a project coming to the McMaster Innovation Center about autonomous vehicles. I think autonomous vehicles will play a key role in the future of public transit. It's because of all of these other issues that I'm opposed to LRT. I don't believe it actually that the city actually ever really qualified, to be honest with you, for this um, higher order of transit. And I also believe if uh, the city had had, it had been very clear that the the money could have stayed in Hamilton, you would have not seen um, this widespread support on council or uh, across the city for LRT. I think most people wanted the money. Uh, my, I've shared, I've shared that with um, people within my party who have, have shared, have gone on and shared it with our leader, and it is for that reason that we have decided that unlike the Liberals and unlike Ted McMeekin, who said you go to the back of the line, you lose the billion dollars, we are saying, council, the money stays in Hamilton. You choose whether you want to spend it on LRT or whether you choose to spend it on other enhanced transit-related projects or infrastructure. And I think when I said it's a game changer, I do believe it is a game changer. And I think that you will see people say, wait a minute, we only voted for LRT because we didn't want to lose the money. If we can keep the money, I may uh, change my vote. And we'll get into that in just a couple of seconds. There is uh, some speculation, and I'm sure you've heard this, Donna, uh, that the only reason that Doug Ford made that promise when he was in town is because you suggested it to him. Is there any truth to that? Well, I didn't suggest it to him. I suggested it to the party. That is my position, I, and that is my prerogative, and I think it's my responsibility to, as an elected official, 
And as a person who's running for the progressive conservatives as a candidate in the next election to raise issues that are of importance to this city, um, one of the issues was, does the money have to be spent on LRT or can it stay and be used for other projects? And, and we discussed it and I said, I think that people in this city have not had an opportunity to really um, uh, uh, voice their, their opposition or even their support for LRT. When the mayor was elected, he suggested that he would have a, um, a discussion with residents about whether they wanted LRT or BRT. But, you know, he pretty much didn't do that. He said it's going to be LRT and then headed off to Queen's Park looking for that funding. I'm simply saying, if you want LRT, you can, you can keep the money. The council will be able to spend it on LRT. But if they want to spend it on other things, we do have, as you know, a huge infrastructure deficit. If that money could be used to address that, then I think that council and, and uh, residents have an opportunity and should have an opportunity to, to state how they want that money spent. I want to get back to the to the tweet, if I could, for a second. I mean, the debate about LRT, I think, is it's it's just fanning the it's flames. And this, this, yeah, it's not going to end. I mean, that's obviously, I think, going to be the key point in the municipal election. Uh, and and of course, one of the elements of that's going to be what happens on June seventh in the provincial election. But the tweet itself, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about city council's behavior and demeanor uh, and their attitude towards one another. And and the mayor was, frankly, one of the people that said, look, you you have to start acting more like adults. With that in mind, were you surprised by the tone of the the tweet that he sent out? Was I surprised? No, I was disappointed. But um, I have felt the wrath (laughs) of the mayor previously simply because I have uh, an anti-LRT stand. I'm a strong woman, and when, you know, people want women on council, but they don't want strong women on council, and they certainly don't want strong uh, progressive conservative women on council. Um, you know, we're always talking about electing more women. Well, we, we say that, but when a woman with, uh, who is strong and, and stands up and, and um, asks for change and says, let's look at things differently, well, wait a minute, that's not what we want. We want you to just toe the line and, and uh, be the token female on council. I'm not. And uh, and I think that 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 is perhaps something he's he wasn't expecting, um, as I said, through the LRT um, uh, delegations and debate last year, I happened to be the person who sat in the chair and uh, I felt his his sting many times. I don't think it was appropriate. Um, and I think this is just yet another example of of, you know, inappropriate behavior. I don't believe we need to do this. We need to rise above it. We need to be examples for kids. Uh, mine are, are young adults now, but for children who are using social media, often we have we wear the pink sweater or we stand there and say, kids, you know, you have to behave on social media because we've seen levels of stress that are through the roof. And then we take to social media and, and act uh, inappropriately. I think we need to act uh, more responsibly, more professionally, and and be examples for for kids who are struggling with all of the pressures instead of behaving the way that we've seen um, some adults behave. You said you felt that sting more than once when when it was happening, and now that it's happened once again, uh, what's your perception, Donna? Is it because of your policies or your gender? Um, I think it's my policies. I do. Uh, I'm not going to say it's um, because of my gender. I no, think but you did that, reference that you thought some people thought you should just be a token female. Yeah, I think what's it's 
I'm not a target necessarily because I'm a woman. I think they're they're probably disappointed that I will speak up and stand my ground and we're expecting something different as a woman. But I don't think it's because I'm a female that I'm necessarily a target. It's certainly because I'm not um, part of the left-leaning group that take to Twitter, that support the mayor, and perhaps his, his advice is coming from a very small vocal group of people. Um, I would suggest maybe he... Um, leave the, the downtown core and perhaps travel around the city and, and, and listen to people as a, as a, um, a candidate in the conservative, or sorry, in the, prog- uh, the provincial election coming up. I was out canvassing this week, and true story, a man stopped his vehicle and said, look, I have a business in the downtown core, and I was canvassing on uh, Stony Creek Mountain. And he said, what do we do to stop the LRT? So when you leave you know, your bubble, your social media bubble and start talking to people, uh, it's a very different, it's a very different world. You can surround yourself with like-minded people and, and pat yourself on the back and reinforce your position. But when you step outside that bubble, it's a very different world. Uh, I want to read a tweet that, that just came in as you and I were having this discussion, Donna. Uh, it's the HML Bill Kelly. It's from John. Uh, it says, totally disrespectful. This is alluding to the tweet that uh, that we referenced uh, with the from the mayor, that is. Uh, he goes on to write, uh, Fred Eisenberger should be made to apologize to the Ward 7 councillor. Uh, when I lived in that ward, I voted for her because I thought she listened to the people in the ward. That's from John on Twitter at CHML. Uh, to that point, does the mayor owe you an apology for what he wrote? Um, you know, as I said, I don't want to get into uh, he said, she said, or an attack on the mayor if he wants to. He can apologize if he doesn't want to. To be very honest with you, I don't think he realizes that that this type of behavior is more harmful to the um, to the author of the tweet than it than it is about the person he's directing it at. He can live with the consequences. I'm a big girl. I have very thick skin. It won't be the first time somebody. It isn't the first time somebody's attacked me, and it won't be the last. But I am not going to uh, sling mud. And I'm not going to crawl into the sandbox. It doesn't help. It's not healthy. And it's not what people who elected me expect from me. Ward 7 Councillor Donna Skelly. Donna, thanks so much for the time. Appreciate the, uh, the candid comments. Anytime. We'll talk again soon, I know. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The Ontario deficit projections uh, that the uh, Liberal government gave us a couple of months ago when uh, Finance Minister Charles Souza came out with the budget uh, have always been uh, suspect. And, of course, uh, last week, the Auditor General, Bonnie Lissick, uh, suggested that it was probably not going to be $6.7 billion, but more on the line of $11.7 billion. And uh, the government's response to that, of course, was, no, 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 no. This is, this is just a discrepancy about, about how we do the numbers. It's, it's really not that big. Well, the Financial Accountability Office, another oversight agency, has weighed in on this, and they say that Ontario government projections are way off, and they predict the deficit will jump to about $12 billion, which is even slightly higher, obviously, than what the Auditor General was talking about. So what's the impact? Who do you believe, and what's going on as we head into an election? Well, let's ask Richard Brennan. He's been through a few of these elections. Of course, retired journalist, uh, covered Queen's Park and uh, Parliament Hill for the Toronto Star for many, many years. Richard, so good to have you back on the program. How are you doing today? Hi, Bill. Just fine, thanks. Uh, <laughs> here we go again with, uh, you know, the Financial Accountability Office and Auditors General from all... It stra- doesn't matter who's in government. The numbers are always going to be problematic. Uh, the government really seems to be with their backs against the wall now. I mean, everybody who's, who can count, 
seems to be telling them, I don't know where you guys are coming up with these numbers. Yes, well, <laughs> this is a this is a problem for the liberals for sure, and and they can and they can put it down to quibbling among accountants, but it's uh, quite frankly, it's it's more than that. You know, we the problem lies with the fact the liberals were you counting, believe it or not, the pension plan, their contribution, to the pension plan for the uh, their employees, mm-hmm. provincial employees, as an asset. And and coupled on that was they formed this 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 really what I I got to say was a pretty much of a secret deal and that was to uh, uh, establish a whole do a whole new line of credit through the uh, OPG with respect to the twenty five percent cut in uh, in hydro rates. Yeah, you know what I I can't quite figure that out and I don't for one minute pretend to be a genius when it comes to numbers. But when they said that it was going to be this huge deficit and it doesn't show up on their books, uh, I got to call my accountant and just say, "Hey, redo my taxes." I think there's a loophole that we can use here. Here's here's Charles Souza's number. I mean, that that's creative bookkeeping. I think they call it, don't they? Well, some might call it more than that, Bill. But it, it's it is a uh, it really is fudging the books. I mean, I don't care which party or which government that. This is just flim flammery. I mean, you create a whole new wing, if you will, to run the deficit or the debt through uh, with respect to this 25% uh, decrease in, in hydro rates. So, you, so okay, it's, it may be an arm over to my right here, but it's still a provincial debt, mm-hmm. regardless. And then we flip back to the pension plan. Well, you can't count money that is going towards a pension plan as an asset because at the end of the day, you can't produce that money. That's the bottom line. You know, they always say follow the money. Well, if you follow the money and you can't produce it, you can't call it an asset. But why why was that allowed to happen in the past? Our, our knowledge on this is that is that past auditors general, I guess Mr. Marin among them, uh, would allow them to do that in their bookkeeping. Um, well, the, or, or was that inaccurate? Well, he, he wasn't the auditor by uh, Mr. Marin, but the point is... Oh, ombudsman, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah he... Well, no, no, they actually... Bonnie Lipsley, when she first got her, her uh, office, did approve this to begin with, mm. and then started to take a little better look at it and said, whoa, just a minute now. How can this be possible? And... I know that the government is again. It's it's an argument between accountants. They've got their set of accountants saying that's just fine and dandy. We can do that. You can count the money the for the pension plan as an asset, and you can also establish this other wing over here to run money or deficit through with respect to uh, you know to plans for hydro or to produce hydro. We can, we can do that over here, and that's just fine and dandy. But it, it's still, I don't care what the accountants say. And like you, Bill, I'm no expert by any stretch. Imagine I could hardly balance a checkbook. But the point is, I can tell you when something doesn't add up, and that doesn't add up. 
And and listen, I understand the the the, the back and forth that's going on here. Uh, and I share the skepticism, by the way, as many people have expressed on this program over the last number of weeks, about what Doug Ford's saying here, that, you know, he's going to slash billions and it's not going to affect programs. Uh, you know, uh, give, give, give me a break. I don't buy that. But the fact is, he's a guy who's seeking office. These are the people that have been in office. And, and there's a responsibility there uh, that, that I think it probably goes over and above what you're going to hear during election campaigns. And, and the numbers here, when Mr. Souza announced them, uh, now, I know that, you know, Ms. Lysak and, and certainly the uh, Accountability Office, David West, the CEO there uh, for these guys, uh, are basically saying that it's not just the, the deficit numbers that don't add up. It's how you think we're going to get out of deficit. It just doesn't make any sense. I mean, and once again, they're talking about reducing spending, but they don't say on what. So, I mean, they're guilty of the same thing that Doug Ford's guilty of. Of, of course, of course they are. They, they're all, you know, they're all singing from this, uh, you know, this, this hymn book where we can, we can reduce the deficit. But the point is, Bill, and, and, and people have to look. At, I don't like paying taxes any more than anybody else does. But people want more and more and more every year from the government. They want this drug to be added to the formulary. They want better bigger and better hospitals they want better roads they want you know education uh, better aspects of education and this all costs money people keep asking but they keep saying well geez, you can't have deficits like this or you can't have debt like this the point is yes we're going to have to tighten our belt b are we willing to do it not likely well, and, and tighten a belt. I mean, define that. I mean, lo- I love when politicians say that. Okay, we're fiscal responsibility, but point to where you're going to start tightening. Point to where you're going to start doing things and tell me what programs you're going to cut or what services you're going to cut. And and the liberals, like I say, I, I get the thing about, about Ford, and I'm, I'm doubly skeptical about that. But Sousa stood up there in, in, in the legislature and said that they're going to try to attain this by 2024, uh, and what the Financial Accountability Office says is they're going to have to find $15 billion in reductions by 2025. That's about an 8% drop in program spending. Really? On what? Yeah, where are you going to get it? 8%? And, and, you know, and then you can always make that, that kind of standard promise that we're going to sell off more government properties. And they all promised to do that. Uh, Harris, Harris government promised to do that, other than the 407. They sold off a nursery, a government-owned nursery. That was it. That was the sum total. They still haven't sold the LCBO store on Front Street, have they? Um, They've been flogging that thing for about I 10 years now. They have oh, did now. they finally? It's, I'm a bit out of that on that, because I remember covered the original press conference yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. But I think that has been sold now and is going to be into uh, made into a condo or, or some sort. There's still going to be the liquor store, just as inside. There's still going to be that. A fairly substantial liquor store there, but it's going to be, uh, you know, incorporated into a, a big uh, condo corporation. Well, the, the, the point being, though, is that for the government to say we're going to sell off assets and them actually doing it at a profit oh. are two different things. Well, this took, well, I, I must have covered that press conference four or five years ago. Yeah. And I think it's not that long ago that the deal was done. Yeah, because I remember doing a story a year and a half or so ago that just said, you know, it's still on the market and there's nobody kicking the tires on it. Yeah, I, I think, it, but again, I, I, I wouldn't take that to bank of what I'm saying because I'm, I'm not absolutely sure. 
But there are other properties too. I mean, well, you know, there's all kinds of things, you know, ex- excess property that they uh, own and could get rid of. But again, it just takes so long to do anything when it comes to government. It's just, it's unbelievable. You know, people complain about red tape, and they have every right to complain about it. It is impenetrable, quite frankly. I mean, even if they have other properties, they don't have $15 billion worth of properties. No. I, no, well, not that they could dispose of right away. Yeah. Uh, they probably own, you know, several billion dollars worth of property. But uh, how, how are you going to do it by, you know, that that time frame? It, it is a mess. Uh, the thing is, we've gotten ourselves in a mess, but we're all responsible. It's just not the government. It's, you know, it's not some kind of, you know, uh, you know, drunken sailor government that's doing all this. It's a government responding to the demands the public is making. Well, and we're getting the same thing now. I mean, you know, as we head into this provincial election, uh, you know, I mean, the, you know, Andrea Horvath's released the NDP platform, such as it is, and, and, and there's a lot of great stuff in there. I mean, you know, I love the idea of PharmaCare. I love the idea of dental plans. I like the daycare. But the price tag, I mean, talk about sticker shock. Uh, you know, and, and, and even the conservatives, who aren't giving us many details about what they're going to do, one of the few commitments uh, that we got from Doug Ford is that he's willing to give Hamilton a billion dollars. I don't know where he's going to get that. I mean, he can't talk about fiscal responsibility in one second and then turn around and say to Hamilton, here's a billion dollars, have a good day. Uh, they're, they're all three of them. I mean, a pox on all their houses. They're all doing it. If we got time at the end of this, I'd just like to, uh, to say something about the uh, LRT. If you ha- if oh, I, should, I will give you that time, certainly. Um, I was in Kitchener. Uh, talking to a, a friend, and we're having lunch, and you can't believe the building that is going on downtown Kitchener. Oh, yeah? Uh, and guess where it's going? Right along the LRT. They're tearing down, for example, they're supposed to tear down the old bus, well, it's not even that old, but the bus terminal right downtown. Yeah. And it's going to be a several-story condo. And again, guess where it is? It's, it's, the place is thriving. I, I'm not, I mean, you know, because I, I just think about 15 years ago when I would go down downtown Kitchener, 20 years ago, and it was like a ghost town, you know, it was just people just hanging around. But now it's vibrant, it's, you know, the people are everywhere. It's just a different place. It can happen, and I know that the, the knock against it is, well, the construction's going to be this, and it's going to be that, and, and yeah, that's going to be a pain in the butt. We know it is. And, you know, resurfacing of roads is going to be a pain in the butt. we got a big story in, in Ancaster now that they're going to redo Garner Road, and, you know, the Bennett's Apples, an iconic business there. Is, well, they're going to stay open, but I mean, it's going to be prom. It That always happens, but you have to ask yourself, what's it going to be like after? Well, and they're already talking in, 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 uh, in, in Waterloo Region, making plans already, apparently, about extending it to Cambridge. There you go. I, you know, it's, you know, as a fairly newcomer to Hamilton, it probably it's easy for me to say, you know, plow ahead. But people have to stand. They've got to have some vision. You've got to have a 5, 10, 15-year plan. You just can't always dig in your heels and say, we're not doing it because, it, you know, well, why would we build streetcars? Because we had them 100 years ago. Well, you know what? Times have changed, and it's, it's a, a different operation entirely. 
and I'm I'm hoping that uh, that the uh, rail sitters I call them in council will not use this uh, you know recent uh, survey saying that you know, a lot of people don't like it and all that as a reason to uh, just ignore it and vote against it because I really believe it will be a real shot in the arm for Hamilton. Well, yeah, but you've seen this happen time and time again in, in, in politics, though, Richard. Uh, if it doesn't have a direct impact or if it's not going in front of your business or in front of your house, you figure, oh, well, that, that's not going to help me. Uh, and and I, 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 to a point, can understand that, okay? But the people that we elected that council that sit around that, that circle, they're supposed to have a higher order of understanding. They're supposed to be visionaries for the future, not just about what's going to happen next week. And sometimes, yeah, you got to make a tough call, and sometimes you're going to get some negative feedback from it. But you got to say, it's the right thing to do. And, and it's going to cost a few bucks, but it's going to make us a lot more money and be a, a, a big benefit to us down the, down the line. You know, that I, I look at it this way. Cities are living things. And, and if a living thing isn't growing, it's dying. And, and the city's got to start living and doing things for the future. Oh, well, the trouble is, and I can't blame them entirely, but they live, politicians live in four-year chunks. Oh, yeah. And it's, you know, what, what's going to get me elected? You know, it. If I come out in favor of of the LRT and the good number of people in my in my ward don't like it, what's going to happen? But you know, at some point, you just you just have to do what's for the betterment, just not of your ward, but the entire community. Well, uh, the test is going to be uh, the next six months, I guess. Obviously, in the provincial election, and then in the fall with the municipal election. Uh, just what kind of a city we're going to have going into the future. Richard, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Okay, Bill, thanks a lot. And thanks for the update on Kitchener, too. Good okay. to hear about that. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The Ontario Centers for Excellence have announced funding for six technology department sites that are going to help foster the change for autonomous vehicles. And we've talked all about these autonomous vehicles for the longest time on Tech Talk, and you've seen the stories about what's going on uh, with uh, Elon Musk and so many other folks. That's the future. We know it's the future. We know it's coming, but there's still a lot of work to be done. Well, apparently some of that work's going to be done right here in Hamilton because we're one of the sites that they have selected. Joining us to talk about this is our good friend David Carter from the Innovation Factory. David, how are you doing today? Good. How about yourself? Bill? Good. Our neighbors right across the highway here, of course, at the Innovation Park and the I'm Innovation up Factory. Is the sign. Uh, can you wave? I can see you there. Yeah. Uh, let, talk to us about this announcement. This is a this is a big deal. Yeah, this is really exciting, and it's something that we've been working on actually for a couple of years now. Um, the Ontario Centers of Excellence, who are actually one of the funding bodies for the province, um, a few years ago said, you know, these things called autonomous vehicles are going to change more than just you know, things you can do on your commute time, it will have a ripple effect on society. I mean, much like the Internet did. Mm-hmm. And uh, we need these technology development sites to uh, allow new companies and startups to start to get their head around this, but existing companies, manufacturers and all that. And, you know, since that's our forte is working with those businesses and helping them innovate, um, could you guys put a proposal together to be one of those uh, technology development sites? So how do, you, how do you go about doing something like that? Because obviously you caught their attention. Yeah, I think, well, we talked to them early on about, you know, where we think the needs are, and, and certainly uh, if you have an autonomous vehicle, uh, whether that's a car or a truck, there's all kinds of issues with, or, or opportunities, really, about how we move goods. Well, Hamilton's a great place to talk about what we would refer to as multi-modal, um, mm. multimodal transportation. So we've got a port, we've got an airport, we've got roads, rail, all those things. So if you're trying to test and understand the problems of autonomy 
in that environment, we're the perfect environment for that. It's funny you should mention that because I know that uh, we kind of take it for granted if we anybody who's been in this area for the longest time. But I, I know a lot of other communities, Dave, look at us with great envy thinking, wow, they've got it all. I mean, when it comes to transportation and goods movement, they, they can do everything. Yeah, our proximity to the border helps us. Um, you know, our manufacturing background helps us because we've been moving goods, you know, from Hamilton for a long time. Our airport is one of the largest cargo airports in Canada, I believe, if not the largest. So, you know, as we're trying to sort of find opportunities with these autonomous vehicles, well, I think we're the place to test that. Well, the other element to this, too, is as anybody who's in manufacturing or in goods movement can tell you, is that oftentimes if you're getting a product from, uh, from where it's being designed to where it's being built to where it's going to market, uh, you're using obviously variations on all of those. I mean, you may use road, you may use rail, you may use air all at one time, or, or of course, a short sea shipping to try to move it off across. That's a, another alternative way now to move it into that U.S. market. So you you better be ex- have expertise in all of these things and have some knowledge of all of these things and have some access to all of these things, and, and that's what puts us in a pretty good spot. Yeah, and all these problems actually are, are opportunities for new businesses. So someone said, you know, I can imagine an autonomous delivery truck bringing a package to your house. And I said, well, how will it get off the truck into your front door? Well, it better be more than just a truck that drives itself. It better be some sort of delivery mini forklift thing that's yet to be invented. And that's what this is all about, right? It's, a, it's like, how do we, you know, squint a little and think about the opportunities that are going to come with this more than just the, you know, a collision avoidance and, and navigation that we see in the news. There's an awful lot of reasons why this is such a great marriage and, and why we're pretty excited about this. And, and since we are talking about autonomous vehicles and, and automotive research, uh, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the, the work that uh, happens right across the road with your neighbor there at the McMaster Automotive Research Center. I mean, a lot of the innovation that's gone on with the, the vehicles that are on the road right now came out of that building and that department. Yeah, and that was a strong piece of our proposal was to say that we've got these partners at both McMaster and, and Mohawk, in fact. So McMaster has the Automotive Research Center, it also a resource center. It also has the um, Transportation and Logistics Institutes. Uh, and then, in fact, the one that people don't necessarily make a connection on is the uh, Institute for Research on Aging. Because as much as we're going to talk about how goods are going to be impacted by this, think of how it's going to affect our, our aging population. When you know In the past, if people lose their car and their mobility, their life changes dramatically. Now, if all of a sudden, you know, being able to drive or not being able to drive uh, didn't matter so much because the, the cars drove themselves, how will our people age at home differently? We've got all that research happening right here in Hamilton. The uh, amazing thing that I find out about the the mark is we call the Automotive Research Center, uh, which is also on Longwood Road. I think a lot of people probably drive by there and don't understand. But uh, Mo Albastawi, who, of course, was in charge of that project when that building opened up a few years ago, was telling me, he says, a lot of the work that's gone on to hybrid engine technologies, et cetera, was done right here in McMaster. Uh, we, we need to blow our own horn about some of the things that are going on around here. Yeah, you know, the electrification of vehicles, which yeah, is too, a big yeah. part of this, is huge over there. Um, it, it is just incredible what happened to the city that we're just not, we're not as vocal uh, as, as we should be. And I think the nice thing about this center is it'll be an opportunity for us to showcase some of those things. And, and we've you've set the scene for this, uh, and, and I'm not going to harken back all the way to the early days of, of you know when McMaster decided to get the innovation park going, and and you guys from the innovation factory moved in there, but but somebody obviously had the vision at that side, Dave, to say you know what this is what we need to do to plan for the future. I, I don't know if they saw autonomous vehicles coming on the horizon. I mean, there's, there's always been talk about that. Uh, but but at the same time, we, we've set ourselves up over the last 10, 15 years to, to be ready for something like this. 
Yeah, we're, you know, I like to say we're change ready. So if it wasn't autonomous vehicles, it would be something else. And do we have the sort of smart minds ready to tackle those things as they come out? And I think we do. Uh, I think, you know, you could throw a number of topics at us and the city could sort of, uh, you know, bend and shift and, and, and become the, the change that needed to happen uh, to take advantage of those opportunities. There was a time uh, when we would look at ourselves and some of the other people that are being innovative around here as competitors. And I know we used to look uh, with envy at KW and say, boy, you know, I wish we could do something like them. Uh, and, and we've started. We've become our own entity right now with some of the great work that you guys are doing uh, at the Innovation Factory. Uh, and now, of course, partnering with people like uh, Kitchener-Waterloo and other innovative centers. It's, I, it, what is the, the attitude here that all boats rise with high tide? In other words, let's share the knowledge and share the expertise? Yeah, we're not going after an Ontario market. We're going after a world market. So we want to make sure that, you know, first the province is strong. So these technology development sites are more than just city assets. In fact, our region will be beyond Hamilton. It will really extend from west of Toronto, south of Waterloo, uh, east of Windsor sort of thing. Um, but it's really, you know, how do we attack that world market that's, that's going to come after our jobs and our industry too, right? So a lot of autonomous vehicle work being done in Silicon Valley and Germany and places like that. We want to be on their right, radar. We don't want to, you know win business from Waterloo. We want to win business from, you know, Stuttgart or something. So how do you approach something? There are six centers that were named, and Hamilton being one of them. Uh, do they divvy up the research, or does everybody do their own thing and compare notes? How, how does something like this work? Well, it's less about the research, because a lot of that fine research comes, uh, you know, comes out of the university and colleges. We've got Mohawk working on uh, grid, high, you know, grid systems and microgrids, because these are all going to be electric vehicles. Um, it's really about providing assets so that when these companies want to do some testing or get some validation, we've got that available. So we're going to have a smart city lab, for example, because there's all kinds of issues around, uh, you know, what would the city need to do differently if we have autonomous vehicles? And that's everything from, you know, the obvious things like, you know, how will an autonomous vehicle park itself if we still have to put dimes in a parking meter? Or, you know, how will our street lights be, uh, be smarter uh, to support uh, autonomous vehicles? And, and there's this whole industry of streetlights that have, you know, CCD cameras and artificial intelligence to tell if there's been an accident. And, you know, what will our emergency vehicles look like? Then there's the policy side of it. So, you know, before someone would even think of driving an autonomous vehicle in the city, there's all kinds of things that would have to be done, you know, within our municipality to, to even approve that. So uh, a lot of it will be, you know, make sure we've got the resources available for, uh, for whether it's a startup or an existing company. Uh, we've brought some really neat partners in on this. So Nokia is helping us build out a whole private smart city lab, literally with a private uh, cell network, because most of the smart city stuff transfers over the cell network, Well, we're not going to go to the city and say, do you mind if we just tap into your streetlights to mess around and test stuff? <laughs> so we have to provide that lab environment for, for businesses. And then when those businesses come and say, and we want to do research, you know, we're going to build something, well, then we need to make the connections to the college or the university and say, well, we've got the leading researchers here. We need to do a public-private partnership between the two of you to really take advantage of some of that research. Is that what's going on now? Is the, the, the dynamic changing? I, I mean, companies all, are always going to have, I guess, R&D departments. But I, I get the sense, David, that they're leaning a lot more on educational institutions for a lot of that research and innovation now. Yeah, it's working both ways, right? So research or universities are saying everything we teach people to do needs to have uh, an industry element of it. We can't just do research for the sake of research. We've got to have a, an industry partner that's saying this is really important. This is what we need in the workforce or this is a product that we, you know, we, we need to be available. And I think universities are adapting very quickly to that. Certainly McMaster and Mohawk are in terms of understanding that, the importance of that. But then also industry, you know, 
Research is expensive. There's a few giant players that can have R&D labs, but there's still all kinds of companies that have questions or problems that they need solved, and sometimes those are things being worked on in a lab in a university. Well, and there's examples of this, I guess, even now. I mean, McMaster's involved in that uh, that project with, I guess, a number of other universities uh, right around North America where they're trying to develop the, the Camaro that they all got, and they're trying to right. do alternative engines. And, 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 and obviously, they basically said, Here, here's the kit, guys. Tell us what you can do with it. Uh, and, and obviously, as we just had the guys in the studio here a couple of weeks ago, and, and all eyes are on them right now. I mean, you know, all the automakers, all the everybody else involved in the, in the industry is just saying, what can you guys come up with? Because obviously, we want to pack you, pick your brains when you're finished with this. I can, I can see the same thing happening here. Absolutely. You know, we see some of those competitions. And, you know, we've done it with pitch competitions. But sure. You, you put out a challenge competition, so they've done that in robotics and space and all kinds of things. And the university students just grab hold of that and start solving problems. And so one of the first things we'll have to do is really create this problem summit kind of event where we sit down and go, these are the real problems of autonomous vehicles. So these are the kinds of things you should be working on because they're the multi, multi-million dollar issues. Uh, you know, and there's things that are already, of course, being worked on, like you know, collision avoidance and navigation. But what are the other big things? When your car breaks down, what happens? You know, uh, when your car's parked, uh, maybe it should be used for something else. In, in fact, one of the big things people are saying is, if it's an autonomous vehicle, you probably won't own it. You'll be a member of a fleet because that car can drop you off and go off and do something else. Mm-hmm. So why would you need to own it? No, exactly. I mean, it's sitting in a parking lot all day where you're in an office yeah. or a factory or someplace like that. I mean, you should be doing something else, right? So who's going to write that software that, that owns the car, that leases it out, that tracks where those vehicles are? And, and then you get you squint your eyes and you go, wow, a lot of things will change. Like if I don't own a car, why are we building houses with driveways and garages still? So... It just, the ripple effect is as big as the internet. You know, when we said, hey, we can now do email and transfer files, we never said dating will change, <laughs> recipe books will change, mm-hmm. all these, you know, thousands of peripheral industries that make up the internet right now. No one saw that, you know, when Tim Berners-Lee invented the internet. Uh, and, and autonomous vehicles are going to be the same kind of thing. But, and the impact is, is multifaceted, as you've just described. I mean, anybody who heard about this announcement and said, wow, this is great news for the auto industry, that's only a small piece of this. Mm-hmm. And we're pretty, you know, we want to emphasize, this doesn't mean all of a sudden tomorrow you're going to see autonomous vehicles driving around the city. Uh, that's actually a really small piece of, of, of what we're trying to do. It's all the ripple effect in businesses and problems and opportunities that are going to come, you know, when the day happens that there's autonomous vehicles. And we're already seeing pieces of that, right? We're already seeing vehicles with collision avoidance. We're already seeing vehicles with auto braking and those kinds of things. Well, that created an immediate need for security because, if a computer is, you know, now driving my car to avoid a collision, well, a computer can get hacked. So, you know, cars which didn't need any sort of electronic security all of a sudden now need to be hacker-proof. You have, uh, at the Innovation Factory, done an incredible job of bringing uh, curious minds and inventive minds together uh, in one room and, and sharing of information. Uh, you know, maybe guys that haven't even met each other before uh, and just, hey, let's have a coffee and talk about some stuff. I assume you're going to take the same approach to this? Yeah, you know, I joke a lot about our, our biggest uh, uh, skill here is creating coffee days between people. <laughs> In fact, we've started to track it because we've, you know, we've created some pretty influential situations. But a lot of that will be, you know, not that we've, we're going to have the brains and minds working here. It's just how do we connect the right people to the other right people yeah. and out of that create a solution and maybe some jobs. Uh, it's, it's fabulous news for, for you guys. And I, I think not only looking forward, but I think it's also, I, I, I think, underscoring uh, the, the work that you've done and the reputation that you've created with the Innovation Factory, uh, not just uh, here in the city, but I think within a uh, m- number of industries right now where they look at this as, as a hotspot now for that kind of innovation. 
I appreciate that. It's you know it's been a community effort, including you know you guys at CHML. Uh, we've had a lot of support. Uh, I get a lot of people sent here by you know another member of the community who says I don't know if they can help you, but go meet these guys and and uh, we'll have an honest chat and figure out if we can do something. Some wonderful things happening right across the road and right through the community because of that too. So Dave, congratulations uh, on first of all uh, you know going after this thing and 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 securing this. And uh, I know there's a, a lot more that's going to come out of this and a lot more stories to tell uh, as we go forward. But thanks for this, and thanks for the time today. Great. Thank you, Bill. Always great talking with you, Dave. Take Dave care. Carter from the Innovation Factory, of course. Uh, this is this is a big deal. Autonomous vehicles, as we've talked about on Tech Talk and other programs, they're coming. Uh, like Dave said, it's not going to happen tomorrow, but, I mean, they are coming. And it's going to change the way that we live, to change the way that we design cities and design everything, workplaces. And a lot of that work, that innovation is uh, going to be designed and started and uh, well right here at the Innovation Factory and another place right across the road from us at Longwood. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.